Hello, and welcome to The Sable Muse, being the life of the Negro poetess Phyllis Peters, nay Wheatley, after the name of her one-time owners, written by herself in a state of delirium and included in a letter sent by the authoress near the end of her life and heretofore lost. Part the third, the endowment of instruction upon Mistress Wheatley, an inquiry into her capacity with letters, the increased notice of her ability and publication of her tome. She travels to England to meet her benefactress, a meeting that never occurs. She returns to Boston to tend to her mistress' health. She is freed following her mistress' death. She marries. The Colonialist Rebellion begins. I need not tell you of those other men who gave instruction. The first, regular and brave, my tutor in the Bible, and the latter more intermittent teaching when he stayed to visit at the household and to gather all Boston as he did his circuits of the colonies. These, with my family, provided holy guidance. I could see how their position could endorse God's way in my enslavement. Soon, too, saw the love that acted underneath the textured play of human acts. A new society seemed being born about us, with the call to nature's guarantee rights for all expressed by the more strident pamphleteers and broadsides sent against the uveity of regal impositions. Brigadiers now stationed in the houses, rights denied to voicings on elections and taxation. My counselors, concerned with my elation and quick support of such rebellious cause, maintained such actions countered the king's pride and God sent right as set forth in the laws. Yet now did friends and counselors promote my avocation. They had come to know the rapid ease with which the verse could flow, as sometimes when we had a dinner guest who was surprised with something that I wrote upon a tale just told. I was impressed by acts of boldness or most happy fate. Sometimes I'd write before them, every line brought to a clever coupling that was shine with wit. And now acquaintances would bring the topics they would like me to relate in poesy, to which end I would fling my energies and so give explication to fancy's role or reason's grave import or how these two live only as love's fort. I read aloud from these and was commended on my accomplishment and approbation supported me with compliments extended in words of understanding, if not all. My gift, it seemed, though it may be a sin to boast of such, would often let me spin a poem on any subject that did suit to express the sympathy or blessed law of God or else God's greatest gift, the fruit of vast imagination now set free in flows of fancy born by love divine. Whatever seemed to purpose would I line, then copy and with grace dispose each time a guest showed pleasure at the muse's spree, the more admired for rising from the rhyme of a young African and even a girl. With such a gift, it was not long before my fame in town advanced beyond our door and people in the market might give smile or nod or even drop a precious pearl of word though always with a certain guile in light of all the proper barricades of status and of race that they perceived and so preserved. 
and some, it seemed, received an insult merely by my sight in ways I had not sensed before. Strange accolades and grand elations of the blood and sprays of epithet that hissed upon my passing, which now I knew were clearly meant for me, though said in such a way that each could be denied in full to such a source as this hard derogation. If my pride was massing within my heart, it was to help dismiss what I perceived as incandescent hatred splashed from a feared inferiority that stirred beneath it like a sloshing sea upon a churning ship's bow. Strange to say, the elation of those days was unabated, just as, throughout the colonies, the spray and heat of hatching revolution seemed to blossom in the broadsides. And then, there was news of soldiers shooting in the square, where murdered was one whom I knew by name, a servant to a family friend. I dreamed that night of Great Columbia. For everywhere the voice of freedom sounded, the breaking down of tyranny expounded. Now all possessed unalienable rights by dint of nature and its God, who blessed and adjured all to join such noble fights as seemed afoot. My counselor requested I study how God works his will through all. So when a famous orator did fall in death's firm grasp, I felt my spirit bound to composition, wrote on how death wrested his soul from suffering and how he found the way to liberate us to the sense of God's most wondrous works. It seems to me that I now worked in endless elegy, my writing all pursuant to that vein, though certain works I held against appearance as bearing on the troubles that did strain among the populations, or advanced too close to causes bearing on my plight, and that of my black brethren to see light. And so my writing touched that liberty, that God may offer us in each death's chance to rise among the angels and be free from bondage, which increasingly appeared inimical to life. I did compose in other veins, of course, and often chose to offer works to print, and soon did court the thought of having such works well prepared within one's home. In this I sought support through patronage. Each counselor had his stance upon this project, thinking of its source. I contemplated the advantages, of course, that publishing might bring on me, as well as any credit to my race, to advance the noble cause of any gradual emancipation. My friends did promote these lofty plans, and with that famous death of our great orator, whose life and breath and substance flowed from his great patron Dane, I thought to eulogize his passing, note his value, and send copy to the same, and so bring some attention to the plight I faced with other Africans, here caught in bonds of slavery, though theirs was not relieved by love and approbation. Thus I wrote an elegy which praised the light of heaven brought within our grasp. For us he honored, urging all Americans to take the Lord's great blessings and to hold the faith. And even to the slaves he told the promises of Jesus, who impartial in judgment even unto Africans in his eternal wisdom, soon would marshal both black and white within the ranks of priests and kings of his great realm.
did address a letter to his sponsor, whose distress upon his swift departure from this life was eased in how I told her that the feast of heaven now stood counter to her strife, and how even a humble African could share in her great mourning. This I sent with my creation. You know how it went thereafter. How her most gracious promotion helped move my publication. In the span of some few months, this happened. The emotion I found in having my work thus embraced was only blemished by the hindrance I had in finding someone who would chance its taking on, and in the end the need to have my hand in making it retraced by those reputed of sufficient breed or class to make report. And so one day I sat in the town hall with my mistress awaiting interview. The grave distress it gave me was not slight, and yet I knew the gifts I had from God and so can say I saw no need to shirk the rendezvous. I soon was called, and shortly after came into a room wherein a table ran across the farther side. Each, to a man, of these most noble citizens was seated behind. I sat before. Each said his name to clarify his function and repeated a few words on the momentous intent behind this episode. In short, to find if I had proper qualities of mind to write what I had written. Answering, I said that fashion informs taste, so I'd contrived to study how the poets mingle in Aurora, Phoebus, and such deities as in poetic diction serve to please the reader, to support which I did name the works of noble Pope, whose fancies spin from such like chimeras of wit as fame requires of poesy, I clarified the meaning of such terms as I was asked, then conjugated Latin verbs and vast in my ability to translate cold a Latin passage given to decide my strengths within this tongue. Then I was told to wait outside. You know the facts related, as witnessed by the most respected men within the city. I could hold a pen and write, and even though, at age of eight, I was barbarian, uncultivated, a Negro, and a girl who bore the weight or disadvantage of the African and lived a slave within the family. I showed a lively curiosity, and without schooling past what was at hand within my home, was reading like a man in 16 months and so could understand the hardest sacred text and also read aloud to all's amazement and delight. And in that span, I also learned to write, as witnessed by a letter I addressed unto the Indian's minister when he'd embarked en route to London and progressed in Latin, that my works are such as may be figured by the most respectable to be by me, that I am capable, and that the judges find fit to ensure such qualities of genuine degree as lead them to affix their signature unto the document. My dearest thought was that endorsement would increase the fame of what I wrote, advance subscriptions, frame the work for publication. Yet I found that even such support as this was not sufficient to erase the stigma crowned by shade of skin. It was clear I'd not find a voice within the colonies and had scant hope of bringing forth my book. Yet fad or fortune favored me. I was promoted in England, where the patroness aligned herself to my endeavor and devoted her energies in circles where my knack and color held significance, 
and hence assured that I would gain some recompense for such abilities as indicate the outrage slavery approbates, the attack it makes on all just souls. I did not wait too long to choose her favor. Adding in the ongoing onslaughts of breathlessness that often brought me to the brink of death in childhood, and still threatened, it was thought that journeying to England would begin the process of my healing and be fraught with opportunity for growth and gain within the world of letters, where, to gauge from what I heard, I was somewhat the rage in reading circles. So, with my half-brother in five weeks' time, I crossed the watery main and disembarked. A new world to discover. of London, noble flavor of elevated culture, diverse toys for each deserving soul whose brief hour joys in taste of full distraction. It was there, the few weeks of my stay, I came to savor the great importance of a well-worked stare, the finely disposed wit, stupendous wigs, and free mobility of every sense. The trip alone seemed perfect recompense for any honor my work would avow, the people that I met, the regal geeks I danced, my fine reception, even how the noble houses opened, granting meeting with lords who kindly indisposed themselves for half an hour's talk, or from their shelves brought down the august volumes of the wits or furnished me with coin to gain a seating at some or other spectacle as fits. The proper taste. Five weeks of passage brought me to that land. My young master came too. He kept nearby to guarantee I knew and followed protocol and to protect me from all harm but also to give thought to any cares or cures he deemed correct for health in general, as my condition had wavered in those hectic months before departure. With the letters that I bore of introduction, I became perturbed when my own patroness declined permission to wait on her. And though I felt I curbed my disappointment in my correspondence, she must have sensed it when my letters claimed that one who sought to have my image framed within the frontispiece should easily be able to acknowledge the despondence such actions caused and view reality as present in the person. Nonetheless, I showered on her my heartfelt thanks for her acceptance of me and her ranks of patronage with humble dedication to her within the volume, for the press would never have accepted my creation but for the gift of her support. As to the circumstance of any criticism descending from my color, witticism alone could aid me there, and happenstance that I be shielded partly from it through my patronage. Meanwhile, my circumstance insisted I be feted here and there. I met a great professor of the art of rhetoric, who to me did impart his interest in my special gift, though since I've wondered if he did not fully bear his true intent and purpose, and so mince his words with guiles of those great citizens whose interest lay in finding out if I, an African, 
could reach the noble sky of oratory, seemingly reserved for those of proper station. If the lens through which I thus view London is well served by anything, it would be this. The hint of unexpressed intention in the way a meeting is avoided, or a play of words brings double entendre, here used to satisfy the knowing and prevent all others from acceptance. The refused, who show the gift but lack the birth, who fail the test of proper heritage. But still, those few weeks gave me matters that could fill a life of expectation. I did see as much as time permitted, and avail myself of opportunity to be an emblem of a system, gaily mixing with lords and ladies. Even Franklin came to see me. My half-brother felt some shame at his contingency, with visitations of being called upon so often fixing such time as was my own with occupations. who'd sailed around the world and published books on everything he'd seen. He did not judge, but studied, and did lean to favor God's sublime variety in making mankind. For him, slavery hurled his people into darkness, bigotry, and bleak abomination. He had fought to gain sweet passage of the law that gave dear freedom's gift to each and every slave who entered England, and urged me to stay in freedom's loving light, on which I thought, and might well have concurred, had not the play of fate brought news of my lady's distress and fast approaching end. We did prepare itineraries, pack goods, and book our fare upon the ship next set to hoisted sails, and were near leaving when my patroness sent word that I should wait on her in Wales, that she had met a black, a man of gift in something not so patently expressed, I sent my thanks, but vowed that I was pressed to leave by circumstances past control. I let her know my sorrow at this rift, which caused such consternation in my soul, but stated that by duty I must act to aid my dying mistress. She who'd wrought such preparations for me as our lot can ever offer in this veil of tears. Throughout that hellish voyage I was racked by hacking fits of fever, but our fears proved groundless. Long before we could return to Boston, my dear mistress had rebounded, though death still hovered near. But I was hounded by my own sickness now. Asthmatic hacking devoured my health, and I would freeze and burn in alternating fits, all which gave backing to my enhanced awareness of how slight our pains are when compared with Christ's dire pain. And how, like Esau, I tried to attain my sensual pleasure with my right of birth within God's holy kingdom, where the light of Christ will save those chosen from this earth, from deep, eternal misery. lessened near the time I met my husband first. A certain etiquette, or caution, 
favorite transport of some letters in private from a dear friend whose estate had some remove from Boston, enforced fetters on uncontrolled expression between servants and any writing, virtuous though it be. He brought a missive from this friend to me, and thus I soon was conscript to his fate. How could I then know how the turns of chance would bring such love and duty, joy and weight? I marked his presence in a letter sent as answer to the one received, wherein his dear solicitude as go-between was mentioned. He was noble in his carriage, and in this unlike those whom measurement of opportunity passed his, if marriage appears discounted through such neutral comments, it is volitional. Hot starts of love mislead us in our duty. For above consideration of my joy and pain, I held the Christian bundle of commitment to those who'd rescued me from the dark stain of ignorance of God's immortal light, and so remained aloof. A sudden bloom from chance acquaintance can well seal one's doom and bind one to a man one knows but barely. But such obsessions also can cast spite onto relations one holds dear. Chance rarely reveals true love beneath infatuation. I forced him out of mind once I'd received the letter. I've been told how men deceived once they'd abandoned bondage to the chain of righteous faith. The sweet intoxication I sensed in meeting him held such a stain as might not ever wash away if left to taint the cloth. The way the wound unheeded corrupts the flesh. To say that something needed to be expressed in me, to hold in favor the way his eye would not turn from the cleft that split hope from his chances, or to savor the reason I held such a man at length, to tell the truth, to coddle secretly the sight of one who showed abundantly the fire endowed with that great seed of light I knew as liberty, and which by strength alone seemed bent on reaching some vast height despite all circumstance. found and say that from this some curse forged the chain of all the growing anger and the pain I nourished as each jockeying attempt to flourish fell prey to a world quite bound to hold his rough endeavors in contempt, undoing each chance through its drab denial of fortune to our race. More damaging, I fear, the sickened children I would bring into this world to turn into the grave in quick succession through the mortal trial we all endure as our Lord's great and brave desire to make us bend unto his law, to feed his glory. Only in this sense can I equate those souls of innocence he takes away from us with righteousness. Thus, if I say that when we met, I saw a man who served as vehicle to press acquaintance via letters that did pray for news of my great voyage and returned the same by said same vehicle, I yearn not to deny that. Later on, my heart did open, and how, as you know, the day of manumission passed, I took the part of womanhood and became wife. If I had seen what would arise therefrom, would I have skipped this noble route? I can't deny that he would often slip in ventures quite as near to subterfuge as any I could compass. Subtle twists seemed to indict each effort to gain foothold in this world of inequality wherein he, black, 
could seldom find employment fit to back his own endeavors, much less to keep a wife. And that this burden came as we were hurled into the jaws of war made it more rife with pain. The way we broke the frozen earth to bury my small babies, whose gestations did eat my health the way the undulations upon the sea erode the looming bluff. I died in stages each time I gave birth. Can I say that I hold to be enough all such relations as life brought to me? It's wiser to acknowledge that the sorrow of living never guarantees tomorrow on earth, and that our duty is our fill. We are certain our liability in living through the deaths of others. Still, for some few years we loved. It ended slowly, and now in some ways seems quite incidental to circumstance. The pain, the incremental appurtenance of poverty, remorse in births and deaths of children, all the lowly efforts to find work, the hardened, coarse endeavors that through years make one a mirror to pain and hate and love. But I digress. That year I nursed my mistress through distress. She kept the spoiling sickness on the run, yet never quite revived. I felt assured that she would heal, yet dying had begun and by accretions gained on her. Her dying encased the year. Each day the wondrous change of God's acceptance flowered in the range and distance of her eyes. My thoughts returned to Africa, where God's work lingered, crying to be received, while here the country burned with loathing as it seemed, for God. For even as war approached, a savage atheism besmirched sweet reason, marking with a schism the face of righteous anger that had grown against the British forces, as if driven by powers that passed the force of man or throne or even the idea of liberty, so hotly mentioned in the streets. The land was rife with rebel sentiments. The hand of reason held up revelations claim to God's impartial justice, I did see my mistress change, too, under judgment's flame, which lit her in delight with the great form of Christ's descent. So even as the world knew freedom's fervent spark, I myself hurled into those moments of the utmost care that slow death so demands. For months the storm of dying simmered in her, then the flare caressed her, and I thought how I, outcast, a stranger when she took me in her heart and offered me her guidance, seemed a part of her own flesh descendant. My own health was racked throughout her dying, and at last as she departed from this world, the wealth of God's great mercy in receiving us upon his cross of suffering did shine upon her base affliction. May she mine the treasures of celestial gold and grow with that eternal weight of heavenly bliss and holiness that everywhere did glow about her in her last hours in this life. She called us to her bedside and did charge that we not shirk the great work still at large, but hold to God's commandment. Then she cried, Come quickly. Come. Oh, take me for that wife and passed. I sat the whole time by her side and saw with grief and wonder the effects of sin upon humanity. 
Sable was written by Alan Johnston. Phyllis Wheatley is given voice by Lauren Elise. The Interlocutor is given voice by me, Natalie Henry. Sable, a poem, was produced and directed by Brian Shaw. Audio recording, mix, and master was provided by GP Productions. Music used in this podcast is courtesy of the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. It was recorded in 1977 at a Shape Note singing convention at Strangers Home Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago. Rajay Wolf provided the image. Special thanks to Sheila Baldwin, Pagin Reichert Powell, Dan Dietrich, and his audio crew. And most especially, thanks to Christine Brooks Coates and Shanty Press, where you can find Sable and selected poems at www.shantyarts.com. Sable, a poem, was made possible by a part-time faculty development grant from Columbia College Chicago.